Would you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12? Acts chapter 12. book of Acts, as I've mentioned at other times, is generally referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. But it has sometimes been called the Acts of the Risen Lord, as it records for us the continuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ building His church. While He was here on earth, Jesus emphatically declared, I will build My church. You think at the time there was no church. That was the first time the word church is even mentioned in the Bible. There was no church. Jesus had His twelve disciples. He had just asked them, Who do men say that I am? And they gave the various responses. And Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for them all, said, We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus commended him for this. And he said, I will build my church. This was more than a dream, though. It was more than a wish or a desire. It was more than a noble ambition. It was a divine determination. I will build my church. And had these words been uttered by a mere mortal, they would have been easy to ignore or at best, given a, well, we'll see, answer. We'll see if you build it. It doesn't look hopeful right now. In the days to come, it would look even worse. But they weren't uttered by a mere mortal. They were spoken by the Son of God. I will build my church. In Isaiah 46, the Lord said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, things that are ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my holy pleasure. This is what the Lord said. When God says it, that settles it. This is the one who said, I will build my church. Now, this, however, did not mean that he would build it without resistance or without opposition. He fully anticipated and knew there would be serious, inevitable, serious, relentless opposition from both his and our enemy, the devil, the the ancient foe we just sang about, the prince of darkness grim. And so he added this promise. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a wonderful promise. I don't know if you thought of it much, but you ought to. Jesus said, I will build my church. As someone said, he didn't say, I will build your church or you will build my church. He said, I will build it. And so the church is the work of his hands. And what he does, no one can stop. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this promise assures us of two things. It assures us 
that the church will always have enemies that fight against it and seek its ruin and destruction. From the very outset of Christ's ministry here on earth, Jesus forewarned His disciples of the inevitability of persecution. And then all the way at the end, the last night before He was taken away, before He was killed, He said this to His disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we will have enemies. He said, in this world, the last words he said in that upper room, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he said, be of good cheer, though, for I have overcome the world. So this promise assures us that we'll always have enemies, but it also assures us that these enemies of Christ and the church will not succeed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though, be, though, though there be those who hate her, and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. The church will be victorious. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, Paul said. Matthew Henry said, While the world stands, Christ will have a church in it in which His truths and ordinances shall be owned and kept up in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness. That's a wonderful truth. And this was a vital lesson for the church to know back then in the New Testament. And it's vital for us to know right now. We've already seen in the book of Acts and throughout the book of Acts that from the very beginning of the birth of the New Testament church, there was serious opposition. You remember how Peter and John were arrested after healing that man at the gate. They were arrested and interrogated by the very ones who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. After they were severely threatened and commanded not to speak at all in, or teach in the name of Jesus, they let them go only because they couldn't find a way to punish them at the moment. And you remember how the disciples, Peter and John, went back to the others, to their companions, and they reported all that happened. And they had a big pity party, didn't they? They just moaned and groaned and pitied themselves. Oh, I can't believe they're treating us this way. No, they had a prayer meeting. They lifted up their voices and praised to God. First of all, praising God for who He is. The very opening words, and they mean so much. Lord, You are God. Wow, that says a lot. But they go on to say, You made heaven and earth and all that is in the sea and all that is in them. You see, they were praising God for who He is and, and reminding themselves and one another who's really in charge here. God was in charge. Oh, these men that arraigned them and arrested and interrogated them, they had such power. But God was the one 
who has the ultimate power. In chapter 4, verse 29, in the prayer, he goes on to say, as, as Peter lifts up his voice, and they all with one accord lifted up their voice, said this, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak the word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name, the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with all boldness. They prayed for this and God granted it and they went out and kept speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. They were faithful. And they were soon arrested once again in Acts chapter 5. The high priest rose up and all those who were with him and it says they were filled with indignation because they were going everywhere talking about Jesus, healing in His name. They were irate. They were indignant. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And then you know there was a divine deliverance. Divine deliverance. An angel of the Lord came that night. He opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So with the courage that God granted them, they continued doing exactly what they were instructed to do. First by the Lord and now by the angel. They kept persevering. They kept proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And then in chapter 6 and 7, we have the persecution of that good, godly, merciful man, Stephen. A man full of faith and of power, the Bible says. And yet, what did they do to this good man? They stoned him. They stoned a good man for preaching the truth. As R.G. Lee said, God's lily beaten to earth by the hailstones of hell. What a tragedy. What a horrific thing to happen to someone you know and someone you love. And then in Acts chapter 8, it says, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem after the death of Stephen. You would think that was satisfied their, their, their desires, but it didn't. It only made them want more blood. This great persecution, it says, scattered the sheep as they literally fled for their lives and they kept preaching. And this persecution was being led by a man, more like a monster than a man, Saul of Tarsus, who, it says, made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And yet those sheep who were scattered, they went on wherever they went, preaching the Word of God, preaching the Word, preaching Jesus. You think, what boldness, what Courage. You ask, well, where did that come from? Well, it wasn't some natural fearlessness or courage that you find in some people. It certainly wasn't a brashness. They were granted that holy boldness to speak up for Jesus Christ. They were given that boldness by Christ Himself. Not merely His example, but working in them what was well-pleasing in His sight. 
And you remember how the multitudes in Samaria with one accord, they gave heed to the things that were being spoken. The Lord was continuing to deliver His disciples, men and women, from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of His Son. Meanwhile, Saul, he was breathing out these murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. We remember what happened to him as he was on the way to the city of Damascus with those official papers authorizing him to find anyone, man or woman, who belonged to the way, who didn't call themselves Christians at the time, but they believed in Christ, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And there he is on his way to Damascus. And we might have expected a a bolt of lightning to come out of the sky and fry him right there. Maybe the ground would open up and swallow him. No, that didn't happen, did it? We would have expected deliverance by judgment. And yet Saul was shown mercy. God delivered His people by showing mercy to this man. Remember that hymn that we sing of Saul's conversion. Lord, teach Thy church the lesson still in her darkest hour of weakness and of danger to trust Thy hidden power. Thy grace by ways mysterious the wrath of man can bind and in Thy boldest foeman Thy choicest saint can find. God changed this man and made him an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a preacher of the faith he once tried to destroy. And so God delivered His church again. I believe that's what we find here in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. We see great opposition arising once again against Christ's church. But there's also great deliverance from the hand of the Lord. And God's deliverance is not always the same. But He always comes to the aid and rescue of His people. He to the fight and to the rescue came. The Lord Jesus. And what we see in this chapter, we see the opposition or persecution of Christ's church continuing by the hand of Herod in verses 1-4. through And then verses 5 through uh, almost the end of the chapter, we see Christ's deliverance of His church manifested. So we'll look this morning at just the opposition they faced again in verses 1 through 4. So would you follow with me as I read those verses? Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So here's the opposition. It says, now about that time, he stretched out his hands. Who did? Well, Herod, Herod the king. Now, you need to understand that there were actually about four or five different Herods mentioned in the New Testament. 
And all of these Herods, this dynasty, they all seem to have been raised on the same tiger milk of cruelty. Another phrase from R.G. Lee. They all seem to have been raised on this tiger milk of cruelty. The Herod spoken of here was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you remember, when he heard the wise men, when they came looking for the Christ who was born, the King of the Jews, he ordered the slaughter of all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. What a horrible man. What a wretched person this could be to do and commit such an atrocious act. The Herod mentioned here in chapter 12 is also the nephew of another Herod, the same one who had John the Baptist beheaded for no other reason than the daughter of Herodias asked for it. She danced him a good dance. He made a big promise that he didn't want to have to keep, but he did because he was afraid of the people. He had said it in front of his guests, whatever you want. Even up to half of my kingdom, I'll give to you. And she wants the head of John the Baptist. And he was sorry for what he had said and promised, but he kept his evil promise and brought his head back on a platter. Now, this Herod spoken of in chapter 12 was probably a proselyte Jew. The ancient historian Joseph actually tells us quite a bit about this man. He tells us that he was trained in the law of Moses and that he was so zealous for the law that he hardly a day went by that he didn't offer sacrifices. His zeal, like that of Saul of Tarsus, went even further to the persecution of the church. Remember, Paul says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. And this man thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting Christians. There is some question whether he was actually doing it for God or for himself. More, more likely, it was for himself, that it wasn't really a religious thing at all, but it was more a political thing. And that his whole religion was all to, designed to somehow keep the people subject to him, keep them happy. But notice it says that he stretched out his hand. He stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, he's probably speaking of what he did to the rank and file of the church. He stretched out his hand. That is, he used his power, his authority to harass the church. And we don't know exactly what he did to harass them. But he did what so many in government do. He abused his God-given authority. Instead of using that authority for the good of the people and to protect those under his care, he used it to oppress the innocent and the godly, to suppress the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Now, when it came to the apostles, he went further, didn't he? Again, notice in, in verse 2, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this is not James, who's called the brother of the Lord and the one who wrote the book of James. This is James the Apostle, one of the twelve. He was hand-selected by the Lord Jesus. 
uh, he and his brother John, who were known as the sons of thunder, they were the ones who came to Jesus with their mother with the request that they could each sit one on his right hand and the other on his left in his kingdom. And you remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He, he said, you do not know what you ask for. Are you able to drink the cup which I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? Is are you willing to go through what I'm about to go through? Are you willing to face the tyrant's brandished steel? Are, are you ready to face the lion's gory mane? Are you ready to follow me all the way? Now, some say yes, but don't actually do it. But they said that. They said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. You will. It's going to happen. He predicted that it would happen. And here we read that it did happen, at least with James at this time. James was killed by the sword of Herod. Herod killed him. That is, he, with the sword, that is, he beheaded him. That's usually what that refers to. He killed a good man. Now, this is a very hard thing to explain. Why? Why would the Lord Jesus call this man from a, being a fisherman to being an apostle? Training him for three and a half years, going everywhere with Jesus, listening to every word, watching every miracle, following him all the way and, and giving him this great commission to go into all the world and be my witnesses. Why would he allow him to be cut down in his prime? The question comes up far too often in life, doesn't it? Why? Why this person? Why that person? You see someone who dies in their 70s or 80s, you think, well, they've lived a good life, a long life. But someone who is young, someone who has so much to give, why? Why would the Lord Jesus do this? The only thing that we can say is that the Lord certainly knew this was going to happen. He was well aware of it way before it happened. And this, remember, is about 14 years after the resurrection of Christ. So he did live those 14 years as a witness for Christ. But the Lord knew that this would happen. It didn't catch him by surprise. He says, yes, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the same baptism that, I've been baptized, that I will be baptized with. It didn't catch him by surprise, but it also was part of his eternal plan. He is the God who is said to work all things after the counsel of His will. It's not that He just knew and He could look into His crystal ball and see what was going to happen in the future. This was part of His plan. Had it not been part of His plan, He would have stayed alive. And Jesus certainly could have delivered him, as we'll see next week. He delivered Peter quite miraculously and quite easily. He could have done that with James as well. But he assured his disciples that not one hair of their head would fall to the ground apart from the will of his Father in heaven. That's a wonderful truth. 
that if he if anything happens to them, it's part of his will. It's part of God's will. It still doesn't answer the question, though, does it? Why? Why? The only answer we have is that we don't know why the Lord allowed such a thing to happen. We really don't know why. We don't know the whole story, though. We really don't know the whole story. We don't know how God may have used his martyrdom for his own glory and for the spread of the gospel, but we're sure that he did. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So if this happened to Him, it was indeed for His good. We don't know how sealing His testimony with His own blood furthered the cause of Christ. But we're sure that it did. We're sure that it did. You remember Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We saw how with the death of Stephen, the disciples were scattered and so was the gospel. And many, many came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that, humanly speaking, we can't see how they would have come had Stephen not been killed and that great persecution arose. Jesus told His disciples not to fear Him who can kill the body, but after that they have no more that they can do. But this one, I will tell you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He has killed the body has the power to cast into hell. I tell you, fear Him. That's exactly what James did. Fear Him, ye saints, and you will find you have nothing else to fear. And so by God's grace and by God's help and strength, James feared God more than man and sealed his testimony with his own blood. And he sealed the testimony of the resurrection of Christ with his own blood. As has been pointed out by so many, that these disciples were not lying when they went around telling everyone that we have seen Him, the resurrected Christ. Because their lives were on the line. Their lives were on the line. Would they make up a lie and stick by it if it was a lie? Who does that? Unless you're insane. These men were not insane. They had a very clear and present mind. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they believed. And they knew that He was able to deliver them any way and in whatever way He would choose. You remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were told to bow down and worship the golden image that He had set up. They answered the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was filled with rage when he heard these men weren't bowing down. A man with that kind of power and that kind of authority filled with rage against you? They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. 
and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. And they were determined. We're following Him all the way. Come hell or high water, we're following you. We will not turn back. And here this good man was killed by this very wicked man. God indeed moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. And the problem is, just as our brother was telling as he was opening that hymn to us, we don't see what's going on, do we? We don't see. We, we're in the dark with so many things. Why? Why this? Why did this happen? Why did this person die? Or why did this tragedy happen to these Christians? Or why? Why, O oh Lord? Well, we don't understand why. We don't see. But the thing is, He does see. He, the Lord, sees. He's the one who declares the end from the beginning. He is the one who said, I will do all my holy will. And what so often seems like a setback for the church of God and Christ building His church, He uses for the enlargement of His kingdom. And no doubt, He used this good man's death in that way. But then we look now, He goes on to speak of the arrest of the Apostle Peter. And it seems he's attacking now the leaders. Not just your average church member and harassing them in whatever way he chose, but now he's attacking the leaders. And it says, and because, verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. He tells us exactly why he had Peter arrested. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Now, this is how corrupt society had become. And how depraved the human heart actually is. This is by no means a, an attack on Jewish people. This is true of all races. This capacity to evil is unbounded. Man's cruelty to his fellow man knows no bounds. In whatever race. Just looking at the news headlines quickly this morning. A golfer punches a frail 87-year-old golfer and he dies. Why did he punch him? Because he said his golf ball hit his car. It ended up it wasn't his car. But the man's dead. And man, this man did it out of rage. Rage is everywhere. Rage is on the planes. The airlines don't even know what to do with all the things that are going on in the airlines. Another headline was a suspect was read, arrested for stomping on a 71-year-old woman's face. And then this trial, this ongoing trial of a woman who killed her three children. I mean, you could go on and on. But that's how capable the wicked human heart, how capable it is of doing things that we think are unbelievable. 
Well, you notice that Herod was animated by a completely different principle than James. James was a fearer of God. Herod was a man pleaser. The ambition of a godly man or woman is to please the Lord in all things. But this king, just like his grandfather, feared man more than God. He saw that it pleased the Jews. That it pleased the Jews is unthinkable. Who wouldn't turn away from such an atrocious act? And yet, in that time in human history, people were flocking to watch those kinds of things happen right in public. And this man saw that it pleased them. Rather than disgust him, it incited him to do further violence to the church. And so he has Peter arrested. He was zealous for the law. We see that further as he as he kept Peter in prison until the end of Passover. That's what it's speaking of here when it, when it says that now it was during the days of unleavened bread. This is during, during the Passover. And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. He was even more scrupulous than the Jewish priests in Christ. Crucifixion. In the blindness of his zeal, he actually thought he was doing God a service by killing the disciples. Trampling on God's Word, but doing what he thought was good. His zeal, though, seemed, as I said, more political than religious. Regardless of what he was thinking or why he was doing it, the Lord was still in charge of this whole matter. He was still sitting upon his throne. He was still watching over his church and taking note of the threats against her. Remember when he appeared to Paul or Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? He saw everything he was doing. He heard those outward and inward threats. Of this man, Saul of Tarsus, he knew what was going on. He was watching the whole matter and he was taking note of the threats against his church. We don't have time to look at the deliverance this week. We'll look at that next week, but we'll see that the Lord doesn't stand as an idle spectator watching. Oh, Herod stretches out his hand. That's one thing. But when the Lord God Almighty stretches out His hand, that's another thing altogether. No one can stand before Him. No one can stop Him. No one can even ask, why are you doing this? Behold, the the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that He cannot hear. Some people think of God in that way, that He's helpless, watching and waiting, hoping. No, He's the God who's in charge of the whole matter. And that's what these disciples believed. And that's what Peter believed. And that's what James believed. And that's what the church believed, that God was in charge of the whole matter. And that they could put their trust in Him. Though they didn't understand and all of their whys were not answered, they still trusted in the Lord in the darkness. They trusted in the Lord, as Bridges says, even when life hurts. These good men and women are an example to all of us. You see, when we come to Christ, 
Jesus said we must hate father and mother and brothers and sisters. Yea, He said even our own life. That's a requisite for being a Christian. That following Christ is more important than your mortal existence. We must trust Him. Trust Him during good times that has its challenges as well, but especially during these dark times. You think of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are being persecuted even this day. And they say there have been more persecutions and deaths of Christians in modern times than ancient times. Just as horribly as they were in the New Testament. Oh, we need to think of these brothers and sisters. We need to pray for them. And we need to be ready ourselves, even as things are changing so rapidly in our own society. When men will put up with anything, any perversity you could imagine, and yet they will not put up with the Bible being read, or Jesus being preached, or children taught to pray, or children taught the difference between right and wrong. They won't tolerate it. As that gets worse, the days will get darker and the persecution will grow. I don't know and I sure hope that it doesn't come to this level, but we know that it can and we need to be ready and we need to be armed with the same faith these men and women were armed with. We need to be armed with that same resolution, that same holy fear of God, that pleasing Him is our greatest delight. Not pleasing men. We need to be ready. We need to be ready as we sang in that hymn. And it's so easy to sing it. It's such a different thing to live it. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Are you ready to do that in following Christ? Say we want to follow Christ and yet we don't want to give up a football game or we don't want to give up this or we don't want to give up that. Oh, what if it comes down to real issues, real matters? Are we going to be ready for that? We need to be ready to follow Jesus Christ. Even to be baptized with such a baptism as He had. Oh, that can't happen. Oh, it does happen. It has happened and it continues to happen. And we need to have such a faith in Christ that we will not bow to this world. We not, will not bow to the standards of this world. We will not bow to the gods of this world. He must be our only hope and stay. He must be our trust. He must be our everything. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners from their sins, from that is, from living for themselves and to live for Him. The life I now live, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. He drank that cup. And it was a harder and deeper and worse cup than we've ever been given to drink. Because it was not only what men did to Him, but it was what the wrath of God would do as God Himself would pour out His wrath upon His own Son that cup was filled with the indignation, not of men, but of God. 
and he drank it down to the dregs. And he did this so we wouldn't have to face the judgment of God. That we could stand before God. Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved from these I am. From sin and guilt and fear and shame. We can stand boldly. Dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ drank that cup. And we can stand. And He calls upon us to face even the death of what men or Satan can do. But remember, Jesus said after they've killed the body, there's no more they can do. So what else can they do? Well, they can do... Look what God can do. He can send you to hell. Straight to hell. And that's worse than dying physically. That second death. Far worse than the first. The second death separates us forever from a loving and holy God. Never to experience His goodness again. But we should be ready to face that lesser death at the hands of men. What else could they do? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When James had that sword over his neck and raised the next moment he would be in glory with his Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which Paul says is far better. We have no idea what God spared this man from. Oh, we read the lives of the other apostles and we see and have some idea. Oh, look, Paul said we're like, we as apostles, we're like the scum of the earth. People hate us. They despise us. I was treated so poorly and harshly Hardly any man has been treated that way besides the Lord Jesus Christ. He got spared from all of that. And he went straight into the arms of his Savior. What a wonderful thing. He was, he's been with the Lord ever since. And never regretted and never said, oh, let me go back. He's in a far better place. We don't know what all God's doing, but we know when he does this to a saved person, when He takes the life of a saved person, they are with Him forever. That where I am, you might be also. We need to be willing to give up everything in this life to follow Him, to trust Him during these dark times, and not to let go. Be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. No matter what it brings upon us, no matter what kinds of reactions we get from others, their frown should mean nothing to us. Their smile should mean nothing to us. The frown and smile of God should be everything. Walk in the fear of the Lord. That's what delivered them. Christ Himself delivered them. And He delivered them by granting them such great faith and hope, such assured, steadfast hope, that they could endure all things for the sake of Christ. May He teach us to do the same. I'm looking forward as we get in and see what what Christ did in delivering Peter and, and how He continues to deliver His people. I believe He did deliver James. Not one hair of His head perished. He's safely in heaven, fully intact. May the Lord help us to have that kind of faith, willing to go and do what they did. Let's pray. Father,